Well, good morning. It's lovely to see everyone here gathered uh, to hear from God's Word. So why don't I pray and ask for his help in that now. Heavenly Father, speak to us through your Word for these few minutes now. Open our eyes to your truth, our hearts to your love, and move our hands to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God's grace is too good to be true. And yet, it's, it's not so easy to accept. And you, you realize that when you go and share your hope in Jesus with someone. Uh, often they, they don't accept it. It's not so easy to accept. And yet, God's grace is so great. And we come to one of the great Old Testament Bible stories today about a total foreigner receiving God's grace. It, it, it's such a cracking story. I think we should just jump straight into it. So uh, follow along on your outlines if it's helpful. I've got a few headings. Firstly, God's grace works through all events. Let me jump right into verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a great man in his master's sight and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Uh, Aram or Syria, uh, it was a pagan nation to the north. There's a bit of a map there so you can... uh, Kind of, it's good to kind of learn the map of Israel and then you can kind of work out what's happening a bit better in the Old Testament, which is why we throw it up. So Syria was the, the nation to the north and they were the pagan, you know, idol worshippers. But we're surprised to hear that uh, the great victories of Naaman, this commander, were from God. They were a gift from God. Uh, it perhaps becomes a surprise. Because, but Yahweh is God over all nations, isn't he? He's not a small-time director He draws especially near to his people, uh, but he does not let the pagans go unsupervised, even in the Old Testament. Well, verse 1 continues, the man was a brave warrior. He had a skin disease. And so we have our predicament for the story, the problem uh, that our story will be looking at, the brave warrior with a bad skin disease, Uh, maybe a bit like leprosy, a great man with a serious flaw. What a picture of humanity, so marvellous and yet so flawed. Uh, Now our story introduces another character, uh, small as a mouse and yet in possession of the greatest gift. Verse 2 says, Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. The great warrior is contrasted with this small girl, a girl who had a tragic life, no doubt. You know, uh, almost certainly being ripped from her family because of this raid, uh, trafficked perhaps, a victim of kind of these movements of these powerful empires, and there was this girl kind of crushed and blown by great forces. And yet she's full of hope, grace and care, for she knows God. And she feels compassion. She, she cares for Naaman, her master. And so she, she shares the source of her joy, of her hope with him. So verse 4, uh, Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And our story unfolds. that The king of Syria agrees to let Naaman go uh, to visit Yahweh, Yahweh's prophet in Israel, to see if he cannot be cured of his skin disease. Uh, They pack for the journey in verse 5. And verse 5 adds, 
He went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. And you can see the Holman translation helpfully uh, updates the old measurements into American unit pounds for us, which we have no idea about, so it's not that helpful if you're Australian. But um, anyway, it was a lot of stuff, is the point. <laughs> and you notice the 10 changes of clothes. I assume that's because Naaman was a bedwetter, wet his bed at night. No, that's not it. It's <laughs> the, the clothes were no doubt gifts, part of the, part of the gifts. So the pagans travel to Israel. Um, let, let's jump into when uh, Elisha and Naaman first meet. Uh, and we, we'll see our second point, God's grace offends when offered. So look at verse 9 with me. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And you have to try and picture this rather comical image, you know, this elaborate diplomatic entourage. Uh, There they are, pulling up outside. Elisha would have been an incredibly humble abode, whatever it was. It was probably just, you know, a cave in a rock or something. Uh, You know, maybe upsetting the neighbors with these Syrian chariots laden with gold, leaving treadmarks all through the lawn. I don't know. I hope they got the right parking permits. But the great warrior with his lorry of money stands at the door of Yahweh's prophet. Verse 10 continues, Then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. Elisha sends a messenger, some guy, with the instructions. Elisha, he doesn't even see Naaman. Why not? I mean, maybe he hadn't done his hair in the morning or something. Uh, (laughs) why doesn't he greet his traveler in person? What's going on? Uh, He doesn't see him, and his instructions are, I mean, they're they're kind of stupid, aren't they? Wash seven times in the Jordan. It's a bit like those banal uh, ads on the internet, you know. uh, Just do this one little thing, and then you look like Brad Pitt. You know, just eat one carrot a day, and then it'll cure your baldness or something. Elisha's words feel like this. Just do this one little thing, and you'll be healed. What is going on? as this great man travelled all this way, only to be insulted. Well, Elisha's teaching Naaman and us about God's grace. Uh, We learn four ways here that God's grace is offensive. Firstly, God's grace is offensive as it forces us to humble our pride. As we follow our story, Naaman unsurprisingly gets angry. Uh, Let me read it from verse 11. But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself he'll surely come out. Stand and call on the name of Yahweh, his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. And I I love the internal dialogue. I was telling myself, it's surely going to come out. (laughs) Uh, The the Hebrew literally says, uh, surely he would come out to me, is is kind of the emphasis there. Surely he'd come out to me, the great Naaman. Uh, And like all of us, Naaman forgot that his greatness was from God, was a gift from God. Elisha, he treated Naaman like a leper who was unclean, not to be touched, like a leper who needed to be healed. And if you come to God, he will treat you like you need to be healed, because we all do. And so it forces him to humble himself. Uh, The next thing we notice is that God's grace is offensive as it reverses expectations. Um, Naaman's offended at the lack of spectacle. Notice his words in verse 11. You know, he says, that he'll surely come out stand, uh, and stand on the call on the name of Yahweh, his God, and wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. He was expecting some elaborate spectacle. Uh, 
you know, some song and dance, a waving of the hand. I like saying that. Anyway, uh, instead, he's given instructions which, you know, they're specific, they're simple, they're ordinary. Ordinary things uh, which, of course, don't heal, uh, which is the point. They, they do. With God's extraordinary power, they would. God's grace is the reverse of what someone expects in a religious encounter. We expect someone wearing uh, something fancy, perhaps, a hat or a robe, maybe, uh, with some, some smoke and some special words, maybe some herbs, uh, and, of course, some kind of payment. But, uh, thirdly, God's grace is offensive as it can't be earned. Naaman expected some kind of transaction, uh, a bribe. Uh, that's why he bought all the gold, isn't it? People expect to earn their grace. Tell me what to do. I want to do something. Uh, you know, perhaps say five prayers a day. Do this one special thing, this little trick, and you can earn your gift. But what a mockery these things make of the gift, as though you could earn God's forgiveness with just this one small thing. And so Naaman gets angry and leaves. God has been far too irreverent. His grace is such a reversal of expectations that it offends. But somehow Naaman's servants can see that this is the issue. Uh, And so they say to him in verse 13, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you, wash and be clean? It's true, isn't it? If Elisha had said, ah, I can see you've bought all this gold here. I'm going to need twice as much gold. He would have been happy with that. But to do almost nothing, well, it was just too much. We expect to have to earn our greatness, our forgiveness, our rightness. So we, you know, we think we can study hard, work hard, or labor and get there. Uh, perhaps one of the most famous labors are, are that of Hercules, the 12 labors of Hercules. Um, they were etched into the great uh, temple of Zeus in Olympia, reminding humans uh, how religion worked. They were etched uh, in, into the temple. And, and the 12 tasks Hercules had to do, they were to pay for his forgiveness uh, from a, a tragic debt he had accrued. And so he had to do these labors to kind of earn his way to be forgiven. Uh, his famous second uh, labor, of course, was killing the hydra, the nine-headed menace. His fifth labor was strangely uh, cleaning the livestock stables of the king, whose immortal livestock produced huge mounds of dung. I suppose we all knew that about immortal livestock. They produce a lot of dung. And so he had to clean it out. And he did this, this list of tasks. And, and, and this is how we expect religion to work. This is how we expect to be made right. If you want healing or forgiveness, you're going to need to earn it. But God's grace, it reverses the whole scheme. We don't have to labor because God did it in his son. Jesus' labors were done in his life of sinless service and death on the cross so that now we can have forgiveness under him. The hydra has been killed. The, The hearts of dung have been cleaned. Now, I'm probably stretching his metaphor too far now, but you, you get what I'm trying to say. Jesus has done the labors. <laughs> well, uh, my fourth reflection then is that God's grace is offensive as it happens on God's terms. See, there's no bargaining with God. And, and Naaman sees this. God sets the conditions. And Naaman, who commanded thousands, needed to learn this lesson. Uh, Elijah says, go wash in the Jordan. Uh, and in verse 12, Naaman says, 
Aren't Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. But God's grace is on his terms, which we see as our story unfolds. And Naaman, uh, his men persuade him to listen to Elisha. And so verse 14 says, Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy and he was clean. Naaman did what God had asked. Uh, Where am I up to here? (laughs) Naaman did what God had asked uh, and just like that he was healed. But more than that, um, he he come to trust God. See, he obeyed God. He, he, he did what God had asked, and then he was healed. So he learned something of God. But his instinct is so human, right? Well, we come to God, uh, and we want to bargain. We want to change the agenda. Uh, we've got suggestions that we would like to make, and we forget that we're dealing with God, the Creator. And so uh, I, I want to challenge you not to make Naaman's mistake. When God gives you his word... Uh, when you're reading the Bible, don't say, oh, this isn't fair, God. I don't like that. Try and correct God. Uh, rather say, you know, ask yourself, why, why doesn't it sit well with you? We, we often learn when we're reading, reading the Bible, those moments where something doesn't sit well. Ask yourself, what's going on? What doesn't sit well? And, and what does that reveal about our sin and God's goodness? See, God's grace is offered on his terms. We are those that trust him, uh, and therefore we're those who obey his word, as Naaman did. Well, uh, the story of Naaman, it couldn't really get any better, and what follows is this great response by this man who's been thoroughly converted. Uh, And so we see that God's grace creates unmistakable change. You see, God, he he regenerates, he rebirths those he saves, uh, and the signs are unmistakable. And so with Naaman, we we see three. Let me uh, go through them now. Firstly, uh, he he confesses. Verse 15. Then Naaman and the whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, I know there is no God in the whole world except in Israel. Naaman, he confesses, he declares that God is the universal God. And such a confession, it's more than mere words. It's a line in the sand. This is my God, he and him only, for he is Lord of the whole world. The next sign of regeneration in Naaman uh, is his commitment, uh, his service. We see that straight away. Naaman, he he orients everything he has to the service of Yahweh. Um, uh, And we we can see that in his wanting to give money to the prophet. At the end of verse 15, he says, Please accept this gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives... I stand before him. I will not accept it. It says Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. See, Elisha wants to make a really clear break with human religion and show Naaman clearly that God can't be bought, that the healing was not for money. It was was pure grace. It was a sure sign of regeneration, though. Uh, It is a sure sign when when people want to use what they have for God. They want to use everything God has given them to serve the true king. Uh, Thirdly then, God's grace is seen in Naaman. Um, We can see him not wanting to compromise. Uh, And we'll have a look from verse 17. Um, 
Remember, Naaman, he's an outsider uh, surrounded by idolatry. And so he says in verse 17, Please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. However, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When your master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship, and I, as his right-hand man, bow in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So he said to him, go in peace. Well, this is a pretty weird one, right? Uh, there's two glaring questions. Why does he want the soil? Uh, and was it okay to go and worship in another temple? Uh, well, let me do the first one. Why does he want the soil in verse 17? Um, you've got to remember, Naaman's an outsider, uh, outside to God's privileged nation of Israel. But he had recognized that God was doing special things. He had, he had blessed Israel in a very special, incredible way, uh, uniquely. And so Naaman wants, he wants to take a piece of this land with him back to Syria. And so he asks the soil. He, he wants to, to set up a mound of dirt and an altar to Yahweh as a little, kind of like a little outpost of Israel in Syria. That's what's going on there. It turns out that God is transportable. He's been fitted with wheels. And of course, that's you and I, isn't it? Uh, we are perhaps the ultimate expression of the, the transportability of God. We are faithful in a sea against Jesus, God's King. But, but is that how you see yourself? as a little patch of Yahweh's soil? Is your house an oasis in the desert? Is your body a, a sanctuary of the living God? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that our bodies are sanctuaries of God's Spirit. When all other bodies live for their own satisfaction and glory, this body, this body, a follower of Jesus, lives for Him alone and remains pure, for him. Uh, and therefore, it says we need to look after our bodies, keeping them free from corruption. Verse 18 says, run from sexual immorality. We keep them healthy and committed to God's service. We're a little outpost for God. Uh, you know, and this church, look at this church, it's beautiful, filled with uh, Christians, filled with the Spirit, an expression of God's church. And here we are, a little outpost in a pagan world. But this all raises the second question. Was it okay for Naaman to, to go to this pagan temple, the temple of his master? And it is funny, isn't it? Uh, the prophet just gives him the green light at the end there. He says, it's fine. Peace be with you on that. It's a bit of a surprise. It was when I read it. Uh, but I think as you think more about it, it's important to realize Naaman in verse 17 has said very clearly, he'll only offer sacrifices to Yahweh. He is committed to Yahweh. Um, we have to remember, Naaman didn't live in Sydney in 2022, where you can just kind of change jobs uh, or move a house or country, perhaps, change uh, religions or temples. Um, we can. We, we have immense freedom. Uh, there's never any reason, really, for us to be trapped, is there? We do have incredible freedom here. Um, I doubt there's ever been anyone as free to serve God in, in a, a dedicated, pure way as us in this society, because we can. But Naaman, he really was in such a different context. Uh, he had to remain in his role as a commander of the Syrian king. He wasn't an Israelite. He had this place in his pagan nation. He was a Syrian. Uh, and yet, in that role, that would have meant going uh, along with 
his master, the, the king, to the pagan temple so his master could worship. And uh, Elisha says, you can go with him because it's clear that Naaman is worshipping God uh, and not these idolatrous gods. So I think that's how I, that's how I understand that as not being uh, a pass on idolatry. Uh, I think we're meant to be in the world, but not of the world, as we often say. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. In the world, but not of the world. Uh, and my favorite example of this uh, is Jesus praying for his followers in John 17, 15 to 19. This is such a great phrase, very helpful on this question. Verse 15 says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So this is Jesus praying to God. And he says, I, I don't want you to take them out of the world... No, we're to serve God here in the world where he has put us. But what matters is who we worship, who we serve, who we are. Uh, Let me read the next couple of verses of the the prayer Jesus says. He says, They are not, from verse 16, They are not of the world, as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, also I have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may be sanctified by the truth. So we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We're sanctified by Jesus, and we, we live out this sanctification uh, by being of the truth, not of the world. Living in the truth, uh, that is God's word. And so the trick to being in the world, but not of the world, is building your life around God's word, being set apart, sanctified, special, being God's. Well, let's continue with our story. Um, Our story ends by showing us that grace can be used selfishly. Uh, It's a twist at the end of the story. You don't see it coming. A final lesson in God's grace. A name in his entourage, they're heading home, uh, and then verse 19 says, After Naaman had traveled a short distance from Elisha, Gehazi, the attendant of Naaman, the man of God, thought... My master has let off this Aramean name and lightly by not accepting from him what he bought. As the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi pursues Naaman. God's let this guy off lightly, (laughs) thinks Gehazi. Uh, You know, uh, with the same offense, it's interesting, isn't it? It reminds me of the prodigal son, the elder brother and the prodigal son, that kind of same offense. This isn't fair. But God says, uh, it's my grace. I'm going to pour it out where I pour it out, in what measure I see fit. Uh, But the the story unfolds in verses uh, 21 to 24. Gehazi, uh, he he goes up, he catches up to Naaman, who's left by that point. And he says, he lies. He says, Elisha changed his mind and wants me to come and get some money. Uh, And so um, Naaman gives him some. And then uh, Gehazi, he collects the money and returns. And then he, he kind of uh, goes back, puts on his uh, nothing-to-see-here face, and he just sidles up right beside Elisha again like nothing had happened. Uh, and then I'll pick up in verse 25. Elisha says, Where did you go, Gehazi? An innocent question. But like when God asked Adam and Eve in the garden, Where are you? Why are you hiding? it?" It's these searching questions that God asks when he judges because we cannot hide our sin from him. And so Gehazi replies, oh, your servant didn't go anywhere. Nothing, nothing to see here. It's all good. It's all good. 
It's incredible, isn't it? Our capacity to believe that we can deceive God is staggering. Uh, and it is even worse. This is, this is Elisha's uh, attendant, Gehazi. It's even worse because he knew God. He knew God's power. And yet he still thought that he could get away with this. It's incredible. Verse uh, 26 continues. But Elisha questioned him. Wasn't my spirit there when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to accept money and gifts, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, and male and female slaves? Elisha, of course, knows. This was not the time to be accepting money. Elisha, um, remember uh, last week he accepted these gifts from the Shumanite woman in chapter 4, but this, this was not the time with Naaman. For Naaman needs to know that, that God offers his grace free of charge. But Gehazi had distorted God's message of grace by adding a fee, a labor to be done. Gehazi the Israelite had committed idolatry by coveting money in his heart, while the pagan Naaman had given up his idols to serve God. It really shows up Gehazi. And so it was fitting punishment uh, and a fitting uh, kind of a bookend to the story that Gehazi was given uh, Naaman's skin disease. You know, the first verse, it begins, uh, there's someone with a skin disease and and it ends with uh, the disease being on Gehazi. I'll read it, verse 27. Therefore, Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and your descendants forever. So Gehazi went from his presence diseased, white as snow. Rather poetic justice to poetically end the story of Naaman's conversion. Well, the culture that uh, Jesus entered into as a man was full of this same kind of distorting of God's grace. Uh, And so my final point, very briefly, is God's grace offends when offered in Christ. Uh, Let me very quickly show you one, uh, the only New Testament reference to Naaman. Uh, I'll put it up on screen. It's Luke, 20, uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 27. Uh, it says, In the prophet, I should say, this is Jesus speaking. He says, In the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had skin diseases, yet not one of them was healed, only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. See, God's grace to sinners enrages. It's so exclusive. The Syrian Naaman was healed while other Israelites were not. How dare God offer his grace to some only? The pagan Naaman's skin disease was taken and given to the entitled Gehazi. And God's grace was taken from the entitled Israelites and given to the pagan Gentiles, to us. God's grace has been given to all now. It offends those that believe they are insiders because they are entitled. And it offends those who are outsiders because it's so exclusive. It can only be found in Jesus Christ's work to save. And so let me ask, have you been offended by God's grace? Has your pride been crushed until you tasted his truth and in obedience confessed that Jesus is Lord of all? And let me ask, who have you offended with God's grace lately? Who have you offended with God's grace? You know, when we tell people the gospel, it will enrage our hearers. But we do tell. We, we tell so that we may pour out God's mercy. 
We do it free of charge as we received it free. Remembering the day that we tasted the power of God's grace to change and turn hearts. We live as an outpost of heaven here on earth now with all of our lives on display to see. God's grace offends when he offers freedom to the lost in Jesus Christ. Let me pray to close. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us your grace. May it offend our pride that we will give up our selfish ambitions and turn to you. Keep us, change us, and teach us to live for you. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen.